Um, but a lot of our series, we've been studying 1 Samuel. It's, it's about distinguishing between the way things appear on the outside, what we're being told, how things look from how they really are. And we've been learning about the fact that things are not what they seem. And we're going to be continuing that series tonight in 1 Samuel chapter 16. And we're going to be diving into the life of David. Uh, but the, the world of TikTok was abuzz last week with, uh, with the news that it might get banned in the United States. And so people were scrambling on their TikTok platforms, making sure that uh, their followers knew all their other social media accounts. You know, follow me on Instagram instead. And, you know, you, ha you had the picture here of uh, Charlie, uh, what's her face, and her 76 uh, million followers that she has that would suddenly be gone. Uh, of course, uh, other tech companies are a little bit opportunistic in this moment. And Microsoft tries to buy up the company. And Instagram uh, then releases their own version of IG Reels because they can't ever come up with their own ideas and just uh, want to borrow from uh, what's going on in other, in other platforms. And yet, TikTok lives uh, to see another week uh, this week. Now, what's, what's unique about how they have created the, the experience that a user has there is while you follow people, uh, a lot of the experience, it's all based on that FYP, right? That for you page. What does TikTok predict you want to watch? based on the other videos you've watched and haven't just swiped past, based on things that you've liked in the past, they, you know, whatever artificial intelligence is, is the mastermind of it all, they figure, hey, this is what you want to see. And you just keep swiping on through. And, and, and what's interesting about that is, you know, sometimes TikTok knows what you want to watch more than you do. Because you might think, you know, these are the kinds of videos that I would follow, but they might know your past and your past browsing history and your past viewing and, and what has caught your attention even better than you do. But here's a question to consider, right? What would be on God's For You page? Of course, God sees everything. He notices everything. But what catches his eye? What, what, what is something that he focuses on? And we're going to learn tonight about seeing as God sees. Seeing as God sees and not just as things appear. God sees truly. He's not just taken in by first impressions. I've heard uh, Timothy Keller illustrate this with uh, the, the story The Princess and Curdy by George MacDonald. He was a 19th century uh, novelist. And in, in this story, uh, Curdy in, in encounters this ancient fairy queen who sends him off on a dangerous quest. But first, she helps prepare him for his journey by having him take his, his hands and, and stick them in, in flaming roses. And it's this uh, terrible pain that he has at first as his hands are in the fire. But then he pulls them out and they're, and they're nice and smooth. And then anything else, any other person from that moment on that he would touch, he would discover what they are really like. And so he would shake the hand of a king, but he would feel scales 
because that, that person was reptilian. They couldn't be trusted. Or there'd be some beautiful woman, and, and he would shake her hand, and he would feel claws. And at one point, uh, he comes across this terrible-looking monster, and when he touches it, he feels the hand of a young child. Right? Things are not always as they appear. And, and, and wouldn't you want that kind of skill to kind of look past just what people put up as a front, to know what they really are thinking, to know what they're really like, to know what a situation really is that you're walking into, to be able to see past hypocrisy and pretense? Well, this story is all about having a heart that's aligned with God, seeing as God sees, and what God sees, God looks on the heart. And, and the kind of heart that God notices, we're going to look at three themes here in the life of David, is that he had a heart that answers to God first, a heart with a song in days of trouble, and a heart of conviction and courage. And these are things that didn't just develop in him randomly. Right? God used formative experiences, sometimes even painful experiences, like Curdie went through, in order to form these things in him and shape him in this way. And all of this is located in him as a teenage boy. He was a man for whom his own preference and the approval of people took a back seat to God's evaluation and God's equipping of him. And throughout these chapters, chapters 16 and 17, people are getting it wrong left and right. You see a failure of human assessment and responses, but the person who learns to see as God sees is greatly used by God. And we need this so much today. So let, let's take a little time to, to tease this out together. First, a heart that answers to God first. In chapter 16, verse 1, it says this, The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? And remember that from last time? Saul's no longer the king in God's eyes. But he's still sitting on the throne as things appear. Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And literally, you could translate that I, I see for myself, I see a king for myself among his sons. And, and, and that verb to see shows up nine times in this chapter. Verse 2. Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord and invite Jesse to the sacrifice. And I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. And, and this is ironic because uh, the way things outwardly appear, Samuel is just going off to do a sacrifice. But remember, it was, it was through a sacrifice twice that Saul excused his disobedience 
to God. He went forward and offered the sacrifice, even though that was for the priest to do. And then in, in, instead of devoting the animals to destruction, he said, hey, I'm going to save some of them, but they're for God. They're for sacrificing. And Samuel says to obey is better than sacrifice. And so this, this is a bit of poetic justice that on the outside, it just looks like a sacrifice, but really Saul is being replaced in this moment as king, right? And then you pick up again in verse 6, chapter 16, the sons of Jesse are lined up before him and says this, when they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And that is the theme verse for this section and really for the entire book of 1 Samuel. But it's obvious, you know, Samuel hasn't quite learn his lesson yet from Saul. He, he's still using the same old value system. Saul stood up tall. He was a head uh, taller than all the people. He was outwardly impressive. He could lead the people in battle. And this was a big deal in these days, right? In, 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 the, in the warfare of the day, you, you could get things done by having this kind of height advantage over people. That, that was impressive leadership. You know, you, you've got examples of, of people like this throughout history. You have, uh, for example, William Wallace. Here's the Mel Gibson Braveheart version of him. He, he was uh, six feet, five inches tall. Most of the people uh, in that day were about five, six. And the, the sword that he wielded was five feet, six inches. He used a broadsword and could just literally mow people down on the, on the battlefront that he engaged. And so th th there was this significant advantage in having a leader, in having a king who stood up above all the people, whose appearance caught people's attention. And yet that is not what matters most to God. No matter what kind of platform people have built, no matter how many followers they've been able to gather, no, no matter how much in the eyes of the world they look important, God sees who they really are. And, and that, that ought to be a warning for us, you know, for the, the, the king that Curdy approaches and realize he's scaly and untrustworthy and not worthy of honor, but that ought to be encouraging. It's just so easy to just get caught up and for yourself and, and how you look on the outside, your, your physical appearance, maybe that's something that you struggle with insecurity about and, and, and literally you have thousands of people now scrolling across your screen that you can compare yourself with, right? And how you look versus how they look and what they can manage or do. You, can you do the dances that they can pull off, right? Uh, do, you, do you have the kind of record and stats that they do? do, do does your sports highlight reel match up to theirs, right? These are all the categories that we tend to get worked up about and want to show up in. And yet it's the priorities of what's inside 
that it goes across God's for you page, that he takes notice of, that he says, this is what matters. Do this, does this person love what I love? Right? Each of the seven sons get passed over one after another. And then in verse 11, then Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here? Right? Seven seems like a perfect number, right? That's enough. And he said, there remains yet the youngest or the least, you could translate that. But behold, he's keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent him and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And that's not necessarily a compliment. It's kind of like saying he was, he was cute. Uh, and the Lord said, arise, anoint him for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. Right, this is the setting for David's call. He comes from a little town of Bethlehem, this small place of obscurity. And even among his family, he wasn't even invited to this meeting. He's, he's kind of like Cinderella, right? He's off doing the chores and not invited to the ball. And yet he doesn't have any fairy godmother to look out for him. But what he does have is God. He has God taking notice of him and fulfilling his purpose and his call in his life. And God sees something that everyone else has failed to see. Right? We, we are in a culture that is, is so image-driven. It, it, it bases its evaluations on outward appearances, right? The social media versions of people catch our attention. And, and, and we think so much of life is what, what is publication worthy. But, but here, David has to be located. They have to go find him. He, he's not on the public scene. He's off with the sheep. And, and think about that for a little bit of what that would mean to be a shepherd. That is a lot of time alone. A lot of time during days in which you didn't have anything like this to distract you. You couldn't just instantly connect to other people, to other events, to entertainment. You are by yourself, alone with your thoughts and with your God. And there is something that gets formed in David during these days, something real. Right? Without having the interruptions and, and the distractions, we don't really know how to do this. Right? Even, even during a shutdown period that we've faced earlier this year and that you're experiencing a little bit of right now, uh, you, you, you're, obviously you're still with your family, but, but you're still connected to the world around you. I, I, I listened to a, a, a edition of This American Life. It's a radio program. And, and the title was How to Be Alone. Because they're realizing a lot of people are by themselves right now. And, and, and they, they took in stories from astronauts in outer space and, and how they manage day by day and what they have to deal with being out by themselves, right? This is not easy. And yet there's something that God does inside of David in these years when he's away from the scene. Look at what Hannah Arendt says. She writes, a life spent entirely in public 
in the presence of others becomes, as we would say, shallow. While it retains its visibility, it loses the quality of rising into sight from some darker ground which must remain hidden if it's not to lose its depth, right? Now that's different language than we tend to, tend to use, but that's a helpful phrase. Rising into sight from some darker ground. Is there anything about you that's deeper than what's just on the outside? than just the, the same stuff that people can interact with, the words that come out of your mouth, the surface realities of who you are. It, it has, has God done something deeper in your soul? Is there reality there that he has formed in you? Or, or do you only pursue things if they'll show up on the surface? If it'll make you look better, if it'll help out kind of your your outward appearance in some way, that, that tends to be the stuff that we'll invest in. And, and so if that's in our talents, if that's in you know, the, the sports world, if that's in our clothing, if that's in our education and our learning, we'll spend time improving the things that other people are gonna see and notice. But what about prayer? What about reading God's word? What about the things that nobody right away applauds and notices and likes and double taps except God who sees all and notices what's in the heart? And you know what, what gets developed in David here? Sincerity, integrity. Integrity is about being the same person all the time whether you're with this group of friends or that group of friends. But we all know how to kind of compartmentalize life. And so I'm a little bit like this with my church friends. I'm a little bit like this with my school friends. I'm a little bit like that with my family. And when nobody else is around and I'm just in my thoughts or I'm just on my phone, this is how I am, right? Integrity is no matter where you would find me, you would still find me being the same person. Right? We, we, we don't like inconsistency. We don't like hypocrisy. And here's a quick example of that. Somebody uh, took a picture of this, uh, uh, this COVID uh, compliance officer uh, not really complying with where he's supposed to stand, right? And that, that's funny to point out. But right now, there, there are calls for uh, Ellen DeGeneres' show to be canceled because she plays on the screen this really nice person, but people say, you know, she's really mean. She doesn't treat her staff well, you know, whatever. I don't know what's true or not about any of that, and I don't really care. But the point is that when there is this break breakdown, when, when you're not consistent as a person, right, people take issue with that. And our culture even does. And yet our culture doesn't realize the problem it's created in only ever paying attention to how things show up on the outside and not investing in anything that creates depth and integrity. But even David's anointing as king is a private event. Nobody pulls out a camera, nobody posts an image of this with the Bethlehem location tag, right? And yet it's, the, it's one of the most significant turning points in all of God's plan. And yet it, it seems so small, but it's significant to God. And, and you can learn something about David's time, uh, God's timing in David's life here. He's about 16 years old in this moment, but it's not until he's 30 that he actually rises to the throne in Judah, right? We don't like waiting for that. 
Can you imagine that? So you, you've got 14 years of being the king elect and yet not getting to benefit from that at, at all. What, what's he doing? What's he up to? Well, look at, uh, look at verse 19. Later we find this. Therefore Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send me David your son who is with the sheep. He's back doing the Cinderella chores. Right? He's back hanging out by himself with his best friends, the little lambs. And then, and then later on in verse uh, 14 of chapter 17, David was the youngest. The three eldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul. So he's, he spent time in the court of the king of Israel, but he's still going to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. So he's kind of back and forth between being an errand boy and a shepherd boy. He's just serving whatever God has given him to do. He's just doing the dishes and taking out the trash and being respectful to his parents. And God is creating a king in the process. And you want to have influence? Learn to serve in the unnoticed places when nobody's looking and nobody's got a phone out and yet you're being faithful. And you know what you'll get in the end? You'll get integrity and you'll get a heart that catches God's eye. John Hanna, he's the, the pastor, not the actor, writes, We fear insignificance, but what we really fear is God might call us to do something that he calls significant. But we don't. But who's right in the end? Right? If, if it's significant to the God of the universe, it is, by definition, significant. And it gets eternal applause, even if it exists in obscurity here and now. All right, quickly, two other themes to see. Uh, we've seen a heart that answers to God first, right? A heart of integrity, a heart of reality, unlike the heart of Saul that we saw last time that always answered to the people and wanted their approval and always second-guessed based on their judgment and was insecure. And then here we have a heart with a song in days of trouble. Where right, you come to the end of the account of David's anointing, and then verse 13, it says... The Holy Spirit came upon him and, and that God is with him. And we're also told in verse 14 that the Holy Spirit left Saul. He, he, this, is a, this is an act of God's, God's judgment and leaving him in his own condition, in his own preferences. Right? That, that, that is a scary thought for God to leave you alone and give you what you just want apart from him. And Saul goes crazy because of it. And he's a tough guy to be around and his servants don't know how to deal with him. And they're like, what can we do to help out this guy? Get him, uh, you know, get him a drink and a Spotify playlist, you know, get, help, help him out. And, and, and here's who comes to mind when, when they're thinking about ways to serve Saul. David's name shows up once again in verse 18. One of the young men answered, Behold, I have seen a son of Jesse the Bethlehemite, who is skillful in playing, a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, and a man of good presence, and the Lord is with him. And he knows his instrument because he's been using it in worship to God. 
Saul wants to drown out his troubles with distraction, but David in the difficulty and the loneliness and the struggles that he has encountered, and this will continue through his life, uses these as an opportunity to draw near to him. And it doesn't get easier for David in this, in this moment, right? He's going to find himself soon under attack. He knows what it's like to be mistreated by other people. He's going to be on the run once again. He's going to show up in the wilderness and escaping for his life. And yet, rather than withdrawing from God and holding up some emotional do not disturb sign, he draws near to God. There's a song in his heart for every occasion. And that's where we get the book of Psalms. Right? These aren't just written by David. They're written by the people of God. But many of them come from this man who knew God's shepherding care, who, who, who knew God's leading of him, his protecting and guarding him, and knew God's nearness. In, 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 in times when, when he was tempted to give up, in times when he was complaining, I, one of the things I love about the Psalms is their emotional reality. It's not just somebody who knows how to put a smile on his face and, you know, tune into Life Songs 89.1 and, you know, whatever, right? He, there's a song for every moment, for the good days and the bad, for the, the complexity that we walk through in life. God is available and near and listens to our troubles as we pour out our hearts before him. Right? John Calvin has called the Psalms the anatomy of all the parts of the soul. David speaks honestly before his God in the midst of brokenness, in the midst of lament, in victory, and in trial. He sings. And this is what I love about so many of you. I'm talking to you, my, my youth. Um, I, I, I know this about you. I, I know some of you have walked through anxiety this year. Some of you have walked through loss, grief, touching your family, death that has affected some of your extended family, confusion that has shown up in your friendships, obviously uncertainty in what this year is going to continue to look like. And yet you sing, you bring a song in your heart to the Lord. And I've, I've taken notice of that. But more important than that, God sees God cares. It draws his eye and his presence and his help. All right, final thing about this heart that gets God's eye is that it's a heart of conviction and courage. This is where chapter 17 picks up, right? It's a story that's familiar uh, to, to most of us. You know, this is the, the, the David and Goliath tale. And the armies of Israel and the, the Philistines are, are there at the Shephelah. And there's this, there's this kind of um, ground, uh, this kind of valley in between. And so uh, one army's up on one hillside and the other army's up on the other side. And that's where they would kind of call out taunts to one another before the battle. And the Philistines come up with this decent idea. Hey, we could all fight and hurt each other and a lot of us could die. Or you could send one representative from your team and we'll send one here from our team and the champions will go at it and whoever wins will win the victory for the entire nation. And they've got a little bit of a self-interest in why they come up with this plan because they happen to have a nine foot giant on their hands. 
Goliath of Gath stomps out and his voice booms and he defies the armies of Israel and the God that they worship and challenges any of them to come out and face him. And the armies of Israel, their knees start knocking, they start shaking, and the appearance of Goliath has all of them paralyzed in fear. Nobody shows up. Not Eliab, right? The oldest son of Jesse. Not Abner, this amazing military hero who worked for Saul. Not Saul, who was a head taller than all of the people, right? None of them take the challenge day after day. They're too worried about preserving their own life at the expense of the people. But then David is sent to the front lines. He's in his late teens and early 20s. He hears the words of this enemy of God and something burns on the inside of him. Now notice, this is not some confrontation that he was prepared for. He was bringing lunch. He was bringing the pizza order to his brothers and did not know he was about to show up for battle. Listen, some of the moments in your life that are coming that matter, well, you've got to lay on the line. And, and, and there are significant turning points coming in your future where you can either be faithful or you can cave in. You can either relate to things how they appear or you can see something of what God is calling you to do. Those don't come advertised ahead of time, right? You don't know, hey, August 5th, it's not some, some date on a calendar. I got to wake up early and eat breakfast and exercise and read my Bible and be prepared because that's when it's coming. We're not given that kind of information. They just show up like it did for David here. But again, over time, there were realities that God had prepared in this young man, a heart that answered to God and that responded with courage and conviction, right? A heart that knew how to listen to God, knew how to be away from the noise. I mean, he even says, you know, I've, I've faced bears and I've faced lions and I'll, I'll deal with this beast as well. It's interesting that, that that's how God prepared him. You know, the, I, I recently heard that one of the things that was expected in the spring with the spread of the coronavirus is that it would, it would significantly affect homeless shelters. You've got people that are in close spaces, coming from who knows where, interacting with a lot of people, and you just would anticipate that, it, that COVID-19 would take everybody down there. But it never really did. And, and they, they started to wonder why. And, and, and they, they, they figured that, it, it, you know, it, it was the, the, the life patterns of somebody who's homeless. I don't recommend you become homeless to survive COVID-19. But I mean, think about it. They're, they're always in the sun. They're always receiving vitamin E. They're, they're typically socially distanced. They're not, you know, up close and personal with other, other people. And, and those kinds of things prepared them to face this, even though they didn't know that that's what they were being prepared for. That's what God was doing in David as well. And he comes and he is not deterred. He stands alone even though he is taunted by Goliath and scorned and discouraged by Saul. He is not taking a poll from the people about what matters. God has convinced him. And he sees things, not for how they appear, but for what they really are. Right? Goliath is both less than he seems and more than he seems. He, he, he's not just a, a human 
being one individual. He, he sees him, he's a lion and a bear. He is the way that uh, the, the Bible describes Satan himself, a roaring lion and a, 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 a mindless monster, right? That, that's, that's who Goliath represents here. But also he discerns the power and the favor of God, that God hasn't taken the day off. He still reigns. Goliath goes out with his shield bearer. David has nothing but the shield of faith and one little stone, one little word will fell this giant. And the anointed king crushes the head of the serpent who opposes God. He faces off with the beast of the field and leads his people to victory. Now listen, if, if we kind of take the Sunday school version of this story and just come away trying to figure out right, what giant am I facing today? How can I have better courage and deal with my problems? We, we've kind of missed the main point here. Because you and I, we're not really David in this story. We're the people of Israel shaking in our boots, too scared. And we have our representative who went forward, our anointed king, who dealt with that scaly man in all of his armor and slew the giant and led the people to a place of success. Right? David is pointing to his greater son, to Jesus Christ who saved us from the giant of our sin and all that holds us in slavery and fear. And yet we're now called to follow in Christ's footsteps. He lives inside of us by his spirit. He, he leads us to care about what matters to God, to have convictions that burn in our bones and to show up and to speak up and to engage in the places that require courage when it would be just so much easier to retreat and let somebody else go forward and handle that. Right? This is the heart that gets the attention of God. And when we see reality the way that God sees it, this is what's formed in you and me as well. Right? We'll, we'll take some time next week to discuss about where do, you, where do you need this right now? Where do you personally would benefit from, from the realization that your, your, your life doesn't need answer to the opinions of people? That's not how you look on the outside that you need to be so caught up in. But in being alone with the Lord, real depth gets developed in you as you draw near to him in song. Courage and confidence can be awakened to face whatever God has called you to engage. We're going we're gonna to take a moment just to, to sing a song of worship to the Lord and, and, and trust that even in, in times when we're apart from one another and engaged on a screen, God's speaking, God's dealing with us. He's bringing to mind what needs to be brought to mind. But you just take a moment to draw near to him. This is one benefit of of being apart is you, it, you get to be alone right here in worship before him and realizing your life is about his glory alone. So as, as Eric leads us, let's sing this together and then I'll close us in prayer.
was created to long after you to cry out and worship to you you give me to sing You're the only reason I sing All glory and honor Is reserved for no other but you Jesus How magnificent amazing sight of you breathtaking I want to be more in love with you Your grace more vast than oceans One drop I'm not worthy Yet you pour out over abundantly You're beyond the comprehension Of my mind for no other but you, Jesus. How magnificent, amazing, the sight of you breathtaking. I
God, we were created for you, to know you, to worship you. Would you be the primary audience for our souls? Lord, thank you that we don't have to impress you, that that's not the point of this story, that if we get our act together, then we'll get your notice and then we'll get your grace. God, it's your grace that even makes us aware of any of this. It's your grace that forgives us. It's your grace that gives us the power to walk in your will. And right now it's your grace bringing to mind whatever it is in us, Lord, that you are wanting to adjust. Lord, ways that we need integrity, ways that we need your nearness, ways that we need courage. Would you be faithful to bring that to mind? And would those things matter to us because we long after you, you ultimately, you alone. In Jesus' name, amen.